0: We're Missy Phoenix, a community of God's people, learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. So it was about half an hour after we had passed the last town that it suddenly dawned on me. And I said to my friend, hey, we didn't fill up our gas tank there, did we? Well, how far back is it? about 40 miles should we turn back well how far until the next gas station he asked me so I pull up GPS on my phone it's about 93 miles to the next gas station what does the fuel gauge say oh it says we have hundred miles we're good okay great this is toward the end of 18 uh, hour drive day we were on a tour going around the country speaking at different schools uh, we had traversed 21 different states, and we are driving 18 hours that day so that the next day would only be 16 hours in order for us to get home before we had some other appointments we had to make. And so we did the math and we split it up and I was gonna do six hours and he would do six hours then I would do three hours because you're gonna be a little more tired your second shift and then he would do three hours and the math was mathing and we were gonna make it to our hotel probably around midnight, maybe one in the morning. And so... We were doing this drive, and this was during his second shift. And it was starting to get dark. It was getting pretty late. And there were no more street lights, there were no more highway lights. We were driving in the dark, in the wilderness. And then a funny thing started happening the fuel gauge, the little digital number on the screen, wasn't accurate. We would drive five miles and lose seven miles. We would drive 10 miles and lose 13 miles. And that, that number just started rapidly decreasing. And we were like, what is happening? We're not going to make it. And we're going to be stranded in the middle of nowhere. The only lights out here are our car headlights. What are we going to do? And so we just start praying, God, would you, would you multiply the gas, the fuel that's in our tank right now, like you multiplied the bread and the loaf, the bread and the fish. God, would you just would you preserve what is here and just make it last longer? Stretch it out, God, so that we can make to the next destination and we hit zero on that fuel gauge. And did you know you can drive for a while on zero? <laughs> if you pray. <laughs> and then we saw it the fluorescent glow of the Flying J sign. And it was like you could hear, "Ah!" just sing out, right? And we made it. We made it. And not only was there fuel there to put in our car, but there was a Carvel ice cream inside. The good news just kept getting gooder. And we fueled up on all kinds of stuff. It was a good time and then we made it to our destination. This, this scenario, this story, maybe is a little more contextual for us. We can kind of see maybe what it means to have some, some light shine in a dark place through that story, right? Or, or to maybe to kind of be looking for something that is not enough being stretched out and preserved, some, something that is maybe about to die, maybe lasting a little longer than we thought it should Jesus uses two other metaphors that were more contextual to his audience. But when we hear them, maybe we, we hear different things. The light one, I think we probably have a little bit more of a grasp on, right? We all know what it means to be in darkness and then have the lights flicked on. That one makes sense to us a little bit. I think there's a little more there, but we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, but, but with the salt, what do you think of when you think about salt? Here's what I think of. I think about how my wife gets on me that anytime we order food at a restaurant, without even taking a bite first, I immediately grab the salt and pepper shaker and I just start piling it on. And I could tell by looking at it, it's not enough salt and pepper on there yet. I don't know what the chef did back there, but they never put enough on it, right? So I do that, I do that with her cooking, I do it with my own cooking. It doesn't matter how much salt and pepper I did while I was cooking it. When I get it on my plate, it needs a little more salt and pepper, Right? I think of seasoning. I know I'm going to die of bad cholesterol like at a young age, but whatever. YOLO. I think of seasoning, right? Isn't that what you think of with salt? And I've definitely heard lots of sermons around that on this topic of like, you know, Jesus is talking about you are the seasoning of the earth. To his disciples, maybe like, hey, you get to go and make it flavorful and taste good. Like, be good news in that way. And I, and I love that. I think that's a really good contextual way for us in the way that we think of salt. I, I don't think, though, that's how salt was necessarily thought of back then. In fact, there, there might be some times in Scripture where seasoning is talked about, where flavor is talked about, uh, spices is even used, but never salt in that way. Salt was never used in that way. Salt uh, has been used to talk about purification in the Old Testament. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, there's this weird reference that like, talks about when a baby's being born, rubbing salt on the baby. I, don't, I, think, I think it was for purification, right? Uh, we didn't do that when our kids were born. The, it, in, uh, with Elisha, he uses salt to purify the water around the city of Jericho. And so there was this picture of purification that maybe might have entered their brains, right? But that still wasn't the primary role of salt back in this time. The primary role of salt in that day was as a preservative. They didn't pump things full of chemicals like we do in our food now and, and call them preservatives and say, like, now this bread's not going to go moldy for like five weeks sitting on your counter. I don't know how they do that, right? Uh, it wasn't that type of preservative. This is a natural preservative. In, in this region where Jesus was speaking, they likely would have gathered it from the Dead Sea, a natural salt that would preserve their food. They didn't have refrigerators or freezers, right? So what do you do with a lot of meat? You wrap it in layers of that salt, and you store it somewhere. And so this would allow them to extend the lifetime of their food, the food that they needed to extend their own lifetime of their bodies, right? And so when Jesus says this phrase, you are the salt of the earth, possibly purification entered their minds, but I think the, the predominant thing they would have thought about with salt would have been like, wait, we're, we're preservative? What do you mean by that? It's, it, it would have triggered this like, this picture in their brain, to want to lean in a little more. What does that look like? What does that mean for us here to be a preservative in the earth? And then he goes on and he gives another image to go with that. Not only are you the salt of the earth, but you are the light of the world. And he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And so we we get this idea of light and a darkness, but think about in their context what that would have meant and what it would have looked like. The image it would have conjured up because they didn't have streetlights when they traveled. And they didn't have headlights because they didn't have cars, right? And so when you were traveling from town to town in the dark, you were in the dark. You could see the stars in the sky maybe, but not much else lighting the path for you. And this would often be a really dangerous time of travel because this is when bandits and robbers would come out. They're they're waiting on a pathway for travelers to come by, and there's nobody else around, and it's dark, and they could get away with whatever they wanted to. And so when people were traveling, and then they would see, just like that, fluorescent glow of the flying J sign for us. They would see this light maybe just over a hill. They'd say, what, what is that? There must be a city up ahead. Civilization is near. We're getting close to what would have meant for them safety, rescue. If we can just reach those city gates, we've made it. There's going to be a bed there maybe that we could rent for the night. There's going to be food that we could buy. But we'll be protected. And Jesus is saying, "Hey, you are a preservative. You're like a refrigerator. You are a light. You're like a flying J sign." I'm trying to contextualize it, maybe it's losing its meaning. You're a preservative and a hope in this world. Now, fascinatingly enough here, Jesus is not speaking to who we picture in our brains he's speaking to maybe right off the bat. Because usually when I would read this, I would think about Jesus sitting down with his 12 disciples, and he's telling this to them. And so we get this picture, like Jesus is saying, Christians, you know, those who said their prayer, right, and raised their hand, those who have been saved, those, those who maybe have been through a discipleship class, like Christians, who get it, you are salt and light. But remember the timeline here in Matthew's telling of this. In Matthew 4, he called a couple of those 12 disciples, but he hasn't yet called all of them. Who had followed him up this mountain? The end of Matthew 4 tells us that these crowds of people who had been healed by Jesus from their skin diseases from their sicknesses and illnesses that were threatening their life, from being paralyzed, from having demons oppressing or possessing them, people who are cast off from community and ostracized. And then Jesus comes and he heals them. He preserves their life for them. And he shines a light in the darkness by offering them good news and hope and community. Those are the people that follow him up this mountain. And so at the beginning of chapter five, when it says, he went up the mountain after he sat down, his disciples came to him. That word, that Greek word, methetis. I don't know why math, like how does math and disciple work? We'll figure it out another day. Methetis, that, that just meant a follower. All these people who followed him up the mountain. This is who he's speaking to. And he says to them, you are the salt of the earth not you will be not if you stick around long enough and you learn from me not if you prove that you truly do believe and you're following after he says you are the salt of the earth you are the light of the world and what is happening here i think what jesus is doing what I would like to submit to us this morning is what Jesus is doing is he's speaking to humanity. He's speaking to people who have felt the darkness and the brokenness of life. They have felt the decay of life. And he's saying, listen, he's he's retelling the story. God created human beings to care for and cultivate this earth. He created human beings to oversee it and have dominion and control and care, to be a light and to be a preservative. And what have we done? Instead, by rebelling against God, by becoming something other than what God created us to be in his image, trying to take things into our own hands and into our own control and become God in his place, we instead have brought decay and darkness. And Jesus, the God of all things, the light of the world, who came in the form of a human, is reclaiming this role of humanity. Human beings are to care for and cultivate and tend to this earth. We are to be the preserving agent here. And think about what what salt looks like, right? Like, I, I told you my affinity with salt, my affection for it. I don't just put one grain of salt on my food. Do you taste salt when you put one grain of salt in your baking? You do not, right? Salt is only effective when it comes together. And and I think Jesus, he he says this, you are not individually. He says, y'all. Y'all are the salt of the earth to a crowd of people who have been ostracized and outcast from community. He's bringing them together now. He's saying this, is what this is to look like. That when you together, as a community, live in the way that God designed for you to live, you get to be the preserving agent in God's good creation. That his goodness continues on longer than the decay wants it to. You, y'all, are the light of the world. Now that one, I'll, I'll admit, that one is a little hard for me at first. Because in John 4, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. We, we, uh, we're singing the song John and Amy introduced to us uh, called Kingdom Come, I think, right? That run Collective song. And it says, We are your church. And the line originally said, We are the hope of earth. And so they just send a message real quick, like, hey, we're going to sing this song uh, for the first time. Can you change on the slides to say, we are your church and you are the hope of the earth. And I love that we have, Bethany does this all the time too. I love that we have people who are not just leading us in singing songs up here, but are leading us in being formed in truths. And we talked about how, hey, we could actually make an argument in scripture to say we are the hope of the earth as the church. But when you're just singing one line, you don't get to make a theological argument, right? And so in singing that one line, we didn't want to give off the wrong impression that we are the people who make things happen, but instead that we are the people who point to the hope of the earth. And I think that's where this reconciliation comes from. Jesus saying, I am the light of the world in John 4, and in Matthew 5, saying to a bunch of humans who didn't yet know who he was, They didn't yet know that he was going to be the Messiah who would die and rise again and rescue the world from death and decay and darkness. And speaking to this crowd, he can say, you are the light of the world. He's calling them back into a role that humanity was supposed to have from the start. And I think if we just had those two verses and go, well, which one is it? We have a problem. But when we start to read the whole scripture, we start to see where this is coming from, that humans being made in the image of God, reflecting what he's like, like the moon reflects the light of the sun onto the earth. But you know, oddly enough, uh, I found a verse in one of the most confusing books of the Bible that helped clear this right up. It's in Revelation. And at the end of chapter one of Revelation, uh, you know, there's all kinds of weird imagery in Revelation, right? Right? all kinds of weird like, signs that John sees and we're trying to understand it all. Some of it's not that hard to understand. Some of it he flat out tells you this is what this means. And at the end of chapter one, he says, hey, let me tell you the mystery of the stars, it's actually the God's spiritual beings, his messengers, the angels. That's what I'm talking about. Like he, he unveils the curtain a little bit and he says this, the light that he's talking about is the spirit and the lamp stands is the church. If the lamp is God and the lamp stands are the church, we are light-givers because we carry the light of God with us. You are the light of the world. In so much as when people look at you they see the reflection of the God who is the light of the universe. You are the light of the world. And so much as when people see the way that you are interacting with others, they go, that is Jesus-like. They see the true light of the world. This is our calling as humans, to be ones who preserve the goodness of God and who shine a light on it so that all other people will see it and flock to it. Like flies flock to a, a light bulb that turns on in the darkness, right? Right? like I was flocking to that flying J sign, like they would have to a city on a hill, that we get to attract people to the true light by being little lampstands that carry that light into the dark places. Jesus is reclaiming this identity for all of humanity, I think. But he's saying the ones who will live in this faithfully, the ones who will actually walk this out, The ones who say yes to taking on this identity and this role and this vocation, this calling are the ones who will follow me, the true light. Because remember, this was a group of people who just had their lives radically changed and they dropped everything they were doing to follow him up this mountain. And so do you see the light? Can you look and behold the light of the world shining into dark places, the light of Jesus? Do you see him at work in your life and in your world? And if so, this is your calling, to be a lampstand, to take that light and carry it with you everywhere you go, to be someone who brings a preserving power of God's goodness and creation. When, when sin and darkness and human selfishness is trying to bring decay, we get to preserve the goodness of God in the way that we live. And we get to spread his light and show that to people. Or maybe you say, I don't, I don't see that light at work right now. And here's my challenge or my invitation is to be honest with that. Not not to pretend, not to pretend like, oh yeah, I'm gonna fit in here and I'll be one of those like, yeah, I see the light, sure. I know this is the thing I'm supposed to say. I know that you know we're supposed to do these things when we show up on Sunday. No, no, my, my invitation is to be honest with that because when you start being honest, that's when you start to see more clearly. When you are honest, you start to see truth more clearly. And this is why we started, this is why Jesus started with the statement, blessed are the poor in spirit. Come to this place saying, I don't, I don't have it. I don't have enough. I, I don't know what to do. I don't see it. And be honest with him about that. And Jesus, the light of the world, the one who shone the fullness of God's radiance in an infant being born in a poor town in a manger in the quiet of the darkness of night. He's a God who loves to show light in the dark places. I believe with that honesty, he will reveal himself to you. And so be honest with that. Ask to see the light of Jesus. And when you do, know that it's gonna change you forever. Know that you can't hide that light Moses went up a mountain and he saw the brilliant radiance of God and he came down and his face was glowing. Jesus has done that for me, for many people in this room. Not that our faces glow, but, but we now, how can we cover that up? Like you put a, a bowl over a candle to try to snuff out the light. No, 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 no. Jesus is saying it's more like a city on a hill. It's it's a whole bunch of little flickering lights coming together. When we saw that city in the darkness, you saw light because there were not light bulbs back then. There were a bunch of candles lit up in different homes and in different buildings. And so as we together, again, those multiple grains of salt, those multiple flickering candles, together, we get to show a more radiant and brilliant light to the world around us. And so let's pray that we could be those people. And as we pray and we lead ourselves to the table here, we remember that the light of the world went into the darkness of the tomb. And I love Jesus's words here. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lamp stand. Remember what Revelation said, church, we are. On a lampstand, what happens? They tried to hide Jesus into the darkness and that light burst forth out and then was given to the church. As Jesus ascended, the spirit came and little flickering flames showed up above all the disciples in that upper room when the spirit came upon them. The light now being carried by us. So as we go to the table, we remember Jesus went into the darkness on our behalf, but he did not stay there. Pray with me.